Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good evening, Jundo. How are you today? Well, living in the present. Thinking about the past. Planning for the future? Planning for the future, Zen of the Future. That's the book I'm writing, yes. Okay. Um, Before we started, um, we were briefly talking about the coronavirus. And when this thing hit a few weeks ago, it tempted me to read a book that my partner had bought on Kindle um, last year called Pale Rider, the Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. And it is quite shocking when you see how many people were affected by the flu. But what I found interesting was a particular quote that I want to read you. Um, The author, uh, Laura Spinney, was talking about the amount of knowledge there was and her work as a historian to to dig through all of this, and that there were layers like onions of of information around information. And she said, the Jewish text, the Talmud, is organized in a similar way. On each page, a column of ancient text is surrounded by commentaries, then by commentaries on the commentaries in ever-increasing circles until the central idea has been woven through space and time into the fabric of communal memory. Yes. And that made me think about what we call the polycanon, which we've already mentioned aren't the original Buddhist texts, but the oldest ones we have written down. And I wondered if that canon and the later texts that we know can be looked at in a similar way, that they're like skin, layers of skin around an onion, that they circle around the original ideas, and and do they do so well enough to help us have a good understanding of what the Buddha originally taught. Right, no, it's a, a fascinating topic. Before we get into it, I want to say uh, all our hearts go out to anyone who has uh, the flu. Uh, hopefully most cases are mild, including the coronavirus. Uh, some people are losing their life, and our hearts uh, go out. Everybody uh, hopefully will stay safe. Uh, uh, get uh, Keep a wash your hands and and uh, take sneeze care. into your elbow yes as to the uh the text well first off what is original buddhism and does it matter and was there an original buddhism these are big uh, topics now it, it depends how you're going to approach it uh there are various old texts the suttas that are uh, cherished mostly in the south asian traditions and there are versions of them translated uh, in related Buddhist sects, including some that are in China, that are basically the same with small variations. And if you kind of triangulate from those, you probably can go back to some very early basic teaching. Were they the original teachings of the Buddha? Nobody knows, but they probably were very early, very basic, and we can say those were early teachings. Does it matter, though? Well, you know, those texts and the entire tradition since then has been one of interpretation, 
and change and adding on and reinventing such that even if those were the original teachings, they're not what has happened in Buddhism for thousands of years after. And that's okay, because just because something's later doesn't mean it's not authentic in its own way. That's the point I want to make. Right. So there is this idea of Buddhist originalism, which I guess we could consider it similar to, I'm not sure what the term is in Christianity, where they go back to fundamentalism. the Bible. And, fundamentalism. No, fundamentalism. Fundamentalism. There's a, there's a term about scripture, the way people interpret the scripture, the original scripture and nothing else. Um, Originalism. Maybe. I know that's what they say in constitutional um, studies or constitutional law. That's, you should know about that, right? Uh, once upon a time, I may have. Yes. Um, yeah. But the idea is that can you go back and find the original teachings? And someone like Stephen Batchelor has been trying to do that, um, stripping out what he doesn't like, keeping what he does, and gets a lot of criticism. Um, But how do all these teachings relate to each other? There's a great quote from the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. Um, He says, The safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. And when you look at these later Buddhist texts, they all sort of are footnotes to an original teaching that we know that we don't have so we have to sort of imagine what the original teaching is going backwards trying to figure out from all of the commentaries yeah well okay first off there's different ways to look at it there's a the tradition of buddhism that is supposedly beyond words and time and if you are looking for that and you're peeling the onion and you're looking for the essence of the onion and when you peel all the onion there's nothing there and this truth that's beyond words and time, you, you're, you can't search for it in the old text. You search for it, you find it when you sit meditation, zazen, for example. Right now, you taste it. You see, you taste the onion. And it's not something you find by looking for it in the past. That's one way to look at it. The other thing is, I don't want to get all, you know, postmodernism on this. But even an author... I knew this was coming. There's no such thing as a text. Yeah. Well, it's true. The, even the author does not own his own text. So even if the Buddha said something, and by the way, it looks like during his lifetime, at the very least, his teachings changed and developed. He contradicts himself very often if, if you take those old texts literally. And by the way, of course, they were orally transmitted, probably fairly accurately. That The oral trans, transmission uh, techniques of the past surprisingly good you know they can they can really oh they're not tape recorders but those old uh, oral reciters really did a good job of of keeping a good degree of accuracy uh so even but the teachings evolved but did the buddha even know what he meant and does it matter because the listener is also part of the game so when i teach something and my listener hears something different and interprets it his own way he owns it, in a sense, as much as me who's writing it or saying it, right? What I find interesting is that in Soto Zen, we look at Dogen's writings to be the sort of foundational text, and yet they're piggybacking on previous writings of the Buddha, Nagarjuna, and other um, Buddhist thinkers, yet it's as if 
we've gotten to a point where we consider this a branching off point. In, in computer programming, they call it a fork, where you've got a program that's being developed and then it develops into different versions. And one of the forks is Dogen, who was, I guess, one of the most important um, individual writers of his time about Buddhism. Yeah, I get I get two book plugs in here because my other book that's coming out <laughs> this year is the Zen Master's Dance. And it's about understanding Dogen. And one of the points I make is even Dogen didn't always understand what he meant because he was like a jazz musician. He was a guy like playing the sound, man. He knows what he felt in his bones. And his words don't necessarily mean something always. Uh, and even he contradicts himself a lot. And it's not original Buddhism. It's not even original Zen. It's, it's Dogen's sound playing the old standards, like a jazz musician takes the old tunes and makes it his own. So Dogen is inspired and, and kind of, you know, he stays faithful to Buddhism. He's a good Buddhist, but he's going his own place. And does that mean he's wrong? No, it's a different Buddhism. There are Buddhisms. There's no Buddhism. Yeah. What one thing you said that's interesting is that we know that throughout the Buddha's life, or we assume that he changed his ideas, he evolved, he realized he might have been wrong about some things. And if we are fixated on original texts, we only get a snapshot of when a given text is written, and we don't see what may have come later. We don't see the reactions of, well, having thought about this for twenty years, now I think about it differently. Uh not only that. Let's just say, and I get in trouble for this all the time. I think the Buddha might have been wrong about a few things. He was a man of his time, you know. On, on some of the descriptions of rebirth, perhaps, he was a man of Iron Age India. People say these were original ideas to him. It's not quite true. The Jains, another religion that was before his time, had a very similar system except for the moral element. You know, he was not the only one who believed in rebirth. So he took the ideas from his culture, and do I have to agree with them? Some people say, if you don't agree with that, you are not a Buddhist. And I'm telling you, that's a kind of fundamentalism. And I'm saying, I can be a very good Buddhist and leave that part out. Some people say, no, you can't. And I say, yes, I can. And they go, no, you can't. And I go, yes, I can. And then <laughs> and they say it's it goes on like book. that for a while. Yeah, it's in the book. It's in the good book. <laughs> so even if the Buddha said it, you know, I'm going to tell you something. All these people who say the Buddha... And then they all have their version of the Buddha who ha that has nothing to do with that guy in India. Uh, I was just reading uh, today uh, a very detailed description of a beautiful ceremony of uh, Shingon, a Japanese esoteric Buddhism. It's kind of like, the, like Tibetan Buddhism, the Japanese branch of a similar tradition. They do the fire ceremony. The fire ceremony was actually a, a Brahministic Indian ceremony that has nothing to do with Buddhism, but got incorporated into Buddhism. I witnessed a fire ceremony a few weeks ago. Amazing, intricate uh, chanting and incense and, and fire. And uh, it had nothing to do with Buddhism. The Buddha would not recognize it. The Buddha would not know what was going on. They're, they're summoning spirits and Buddhas that the Buddha would have never heard of. Uh, Fudo Myo, the unmoving Myo Buddha. Buddha would have said, who is that? What's going on here? Where am I? You're in a Buddhist temple. This is a Buddhist temple? What's a Buddhist temple? Because they had no Buddhist temples back in his day. He wouldn't know well, what's going on. Well, they didn't have Buddhists back in the day. They just had people who were they following it. Right, right. But does that mean what I witnessed there is not powerful? 
I don't mean to, I'm not criticizing it. No, it's tremendous. It's a powerful, beautiful branch of Buddhism that the Buddha had never heard of, but it is Buddhism. And all our Buddhism, even the so-called Theravadan Buddhism, people say that's closest to the original. Not really. Heavily interpreted. The interpretations of the old suttas kind of dominate what the old suttas actually say. They're, so it's all through a lens. Nobody is practicing really original Buddhism. So why don't we just get off each other's case? In a book that we both read recently, we mentioned a couple of times called The Circle of the Way, A Concise History of Zen from the Buddha to the Modern World by Barbara O'Brien. Um, yeah. I seem to recall that there was a great deal of discussion about texts that went in multiple directions. So maybe from India to Japan and back to India and to China and back to Japan, et cetera, et cetera. So over the years, some of these texts that are considered to be important in India may have been back translated from Chinese. Is that correct? Not only that, let's just say it directly. Almost everything that's a so-called Mahayana text, that's a Northern, uh, Euro uh, Northern European, Nor Northern Asian Buddhism in China, in Tibet, in Japan, is somebody's later creation. It's from an inspired religious author who invented the Lotus Sutra. Wild, wild story. Man, it never happened as a historical event. But does that matter? Well, this is where our modern idea of history and plagiarism and all these ideas are just not applicable. People didn't think that way. Basically, it comes down to this. If you had a religious fellow who was meditating and he kind of in his heart, uh, what's the expression, channeled the Buddha and saw this in a vision or felt inspired to write it down, it's a real text. Uh, it's a real text if it's a good lesson in there, if they're good teachings. So you can't say, did it ever occur that this is what happened actually? No. Is it history? In our modern sense, no. Is it real? Yes, it's real and authentic and good if it is what it is. So it's the word of the Buddha. It's a real sutra. So what we have is a series of, of commentaries and a series of ideas that expound on previous ideas. But unlike in, say, Christianity, where the Bible was written by a committee, it wasn't written by one person, um, and the, the, the sort of infrastructure of the church guided it through history, that didn't happen in Buddhism. There's no Buddhist pope. There's no group no. of Buddhist cardinals. So each country with their own traditions, veered in different directions based on the same original ideas, hence all the divergences we have now. Not, not just countries, different teachers and temples. You couldn't get two guys to agree about anything. It was mostly <laughs> guys, of course. Yes. But uh, uh, no, you know, uh, different teachers taught different things. Even within, I'm a Soto Zen practitioner, you can't get two Soto Zen uh, teachers to completely agree on most things. We all have our, our own approaches. And the question is, it's like, I can sometimes compare this to cooking. Cooking, is it good and nutritious or not? If it's good and nutritious and helps sentient beings, it's a good teaching. And one, of course, one medicine or one meal 
may not be suited to everybody. So what's right for me may be wrong for you. This is where, you know, I'm a a relativist. And there are some people that say, no, there's one flavor of Buddhism, good in the beginning, the middle, and the end, and it must apply to everyone. And everyone must sit the same way and chant the same thing and believe the same. That's fundamentalism. Different people need different things. What's right for me may be wrong for you. Fine. If you find, and sometimes I pick up the Lotus Sutra, and I find different things in it in the same paragraph that I didn't see the last time I read it a week before. It's like a, a completely different story, even though the words are the same. Buddhism the corollary to what evolving. you're describing, though, is people who may want to pick and choose according just to what they like, which ends no. up with a sort of McBuddhism. No, that's not good either. It's then let's go back to food and nutrition again. There's a difference between going through the fast food line and just taking the unhealthy stuff that tastes good and something that's truly good and nutritious for you. Just because something's new or something was someone's creation, it still can be good and good for you. And something that's cheap is and not healthy is just cheap and not healthy. And the old stuff, just some, because something's old doesn't mean it's good. There are many old traditions that I just think, uh, well, you know, those are very old and wonderful traditions for somebody, maybe, but I don't get it, and we can do without that. So, uh, you know, don't uh, don't just pick and choose uh, what you like, but uh, you don't have to uh, take everything either. Well, how do you reconcile the two? That if you don't have to take everything, but you can't pick and choose, then you have to follow someone who's going to guide you. And how do you know that that guide is truly correct? But again, does it even matter? Does it matter that much? Can we distill the core teachings, uh, essentially, meditation? I guess we could agree that the Four Noble Truths are probably the core teachings. Um, yeah, okay. But Yeah, I, I, I should say this so it's not misunderstood. There are certain core teachings of Buddhism that I think almost everyone agrees with, Basically, I mean, there are different interpretations, and they're important. I said I don't particularly uh, hone to uh, rebirth, uh, the literal rebirth, but there are other things. For example, non-self, that we're not quite the solid individual me and you that we think we are. This is very important. Impermanence, the teaching of uh, dukkha, and that there's a path, a way to dukkha's suffering in Buddhist sense. Uh, there's a way to transcend that. Uh, the, that's the Four Noble Truths. There are many basic teachings of Buddhism that seem to have been there in the beginning and are very important. But again, uh, people actually interpret these things in different ways. So my dukkha is not the other guy's dukkha. And my view of uh, what it means to be uh, non-self or empty may not be exactly what everyone agrees with. But uh, it's just like Christianity or anything. You know, you you can't get two people to agree. So what? If Let everybody agree to disagree. That's what we should do and not fight about. <laughs> you mentioned earlier about the Buddhist time being in the Iron Age, and I think people tend yeah. to forget how much of a difference there was between that past 2,500 years ago or more and our present. Not, notwithstanding the fact that in the past century, the world has changed so drastically because of electricity and computers and all that. But when you go back that far, the world was a vastly different place. Oh, sure. Yeah. They, they didn't have Netflix. 
It was amazing. They didn't have Netflix. They didn't have iPods. No, well, they had Netflix, but they had nothing to watch it on. It was, but uh... <laughs> well, all those guys who learned the suitors, those were the Netflix people. They were the streamers, weren't they? Yes, they did. They were streaming. The guy would come and he'd recite, you know, <laughs> and then you turn him off, and you you could pick up later where you left off. But yeah. uh, it, you know, even in India, we think there was one India. But I was just uh, reading that uh, Bronkers, Professor Bronkers, has a paper called I think it's the Brahmin influence on Buddhism, and uh, he's saying that uh, you know, oh, we say the Buddha was from India, but he was from the I believe it's pronounced the Great Magadha region where the Jains were, and they had certain traditions that were not in the other sections where the Brahmins were stronger. And so you see Brahmin influences uh, only later. And it was, it's a fascinating history about how immediately after the Buddha's time, even during his life, Buddha was all, Buddhism was already changing. Because, for example, you had these Brahmin influences. The, and within a couple of centuries, basically, Buddhism in many ways had become everything that the Buddha had rejected. <laughs> because of these uh, influences from the Brahmin religion that basically became dominant in Buddhism. For example, Buddha didn't have monasteries. You know, and suddenly we're, suddenly we're a culture of temples and monasteries. Buddha was not very much into that at all. That's just one example. So, you know, would the Buddha recognize uh, Buddhism if he came? He's, you know, you'd show him a Buddha statue, and he'd go, who's that guy? That's you. Really? That's me? I, he wouldn't know. Uh... <laughs> So I just say, how, you asked before, how do you find the path for you? Well, uh, first off, find a, a good group and a good teacher and some good uh, studies that resonate with you. And look, this is very important, look trustworthy and reliable. There's a lot of, you know, it's an Eastern religion business. There's a lot of uh, questionable folks out there. I just heard a couple of stories this week about somebody who told uh, some advice to someone, and I said, that person needs a psychiatrist. Don't say they're having a spiritual experience. But anyway, I don't want to get into that. You get a lot of crazy advice out there and questionable teachers. Find someone reliable, someone you can trust, and then try it. And if it resonates with you and you stick with it, even if it's a little hard, you know, give it some time. It's like anything, jogging, sports, uh, learning the piano. You can't judge at the beginning. Give it some time. And if it resonates with you, you'll know because it'll change your life. It'll revolutionize everything. And then you'll be some fool who 50 years later is still doing it. Like I think <laughs> you and me. <laughs> Not quite 50 for me, but yeah. Um, I, I guess that's a, a good way to gauge it if you're still doing it after decades. And, and I think young people who get into something like this, they expect to have instant results, perhaps. And they don't realize that it's not something that just happens in a week, a month, a year, the appreciation for this sort of teaching, but that it takes a great deal of experience. No, there are, there are some instant results. There are certain things about the practice that you'll immediately feel that, oh, there's a lot of wisdom here. But it's like a marriage. You know, there's the honeymoon, and then there's the part where you go, you know, well, how did I marry this person? And then when you stick through that, hopefully, if you don't get a divorce, you stick through that, that's when the real richness of the relationship comes. There are some things that uh, through thick and thin, it's worth sticking with. And, 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 and this Buddhist path is like that. Uh, it's worth sticking. Once you find the person who resonates with you, just like in a, in a relationship, 
and you commit to it and you really give yourself to it, oh, it's worth it. And no, there, those some things take time. Uh, it, uh, it gets into your bone. That's true. But there, there, there are good things at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end, too. One thing I want to add briefly is that we are talking about Soto Zen, but I've always found it interesting to read books from and about other Buddhist traditions. No, everybody but Soto Zen is wrong. <laughs> to, to read how the Tibetans approach things, to read how Theravadans approach things, um, I find it interesting to see the echoes and the differences, even if you don't want to agree with the practices. Sure. Um, it's kind of like hearing a conversation translated from different languages, that each one is saying similar things in different ways. Well, that's right, and I, I wish we could recognize this. We were talking about you know married Japanese monks and how a lot of people on the continent will look at uh, the Japanese monks or the, the the Westerners now and go, "Well, you're you're married, you're having sex, you're not you're not Buddhist priests. That's a, you know a completely heterodox a heresy." And I say, you know, don't stop stop that. Uh, do your own practice. There's a place for people in monasteries who are celibate. There are people who are living in caves and they're hermits. There are people who are uh, living basically a lay life. There's the Japanese way of being a priest who's married. They're all good ways if they're good ways, period. There's room in the universe for all of us. That's a, a basic teaching of Buddhism. There's just, there are good things and there are bad things, but there are many good things. Okay, Jindo, thank you very much. Where do we go from here? To the future. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.